Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, welcome, and uh, for those online, good morning as well. Uh, I'm Andrew, I'm one of the pastors here. You may not know this about me, I actually started at Christ Community as a resident. So if you're familiar with our residency program, that's actually how I started here. And I remember early in my residency, I uh, was asked to walk through a really difficult relational situation between two church members here. And part of the beauty of our residency is that, you know, as I, you know, this was 2010, so as a young 20-something, I didn't have to walk through that alone as a pastor, and I have had many wonderful mentors here at Christ Community, and one of whom probably many of you know, his name is Pastor Warren Trainer. So he actually came alongside me and helped me in this situation. Warren is the best, if you don't know, uh, he's amazing. Anyway, he was helping me think about uh, all this stuff going on. And at one point, I was, I was confused as to why things were so difficult. And he said something to me that I've never forgotten. He said, Andrew, hurt people hurt people. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Hurt people hurt people. It, it's a really helpful reminder to me that often when, when we find ourselves at our worst or someone that we care about is at their worst, it's because something has deeply hurt us and we've not yet dealt with it. But what if the opposite is also true? And I think that's part of what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, is getting at here. What, what if loved people love people? So with that in mind, listen again to, to Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see, Paul knows that we will never love each other or our neighbors as ourselves, as Jesus commands, until we know how deeply we are loved. And he calls the church, Paul does, those who, who, who follow Jesus here in Ephesus, he calls them beloved children of God. For those of you who have young children in your lives, whether that's your own kids or grandkids or you're an auntie or an uncle or you're a teacher or you're an educator, you know the look on a child's face when they genuinely grasp that they are loved. There's nothing like it. There's a delight and an ease and a comfort that a child experiences when they see an adult taking genuine interest in them. That's when you really get to know them because they feel safe in someone else's love and care. And of course, long-term, we know that those children are less likely to act out in destructive ways, either with themselves or with others, because they know they are loved. We never outgrow that, do we? We are the same. When we know we're beloved, as Paul reminds us here, we can walk more in love with those around us. Makes sense, right? Loved people love people. There probably isn't a person in this room who doesn't agree with that statement or understand it. Everyone is basically pro-love, right? You say that word, it's like, yeah, that's good. The difficult part is when we begin to describe what we mean by love. And the real teeth of this passage is around how God defines the kind of love we are supposed to have for one another as his people. It is not a generic thing. It's a very specific thing that Paul begins to lay out here in this passage. And frankly, depending on where you're at as you enter this space this morning, it's going to confront some of, some of our very basic assumptions that we often make about what love should look like. This whole chapter will. So if you brought your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Use your table of contents if you need to. We're going to start again in verse 1. Let's look at this together. First point Paul makes here is this. Loved people love people more than their desires. Paul is adamant here that loved people do not confuse their desires for real love. They are not the same thing. In fact, in some cases, they are the opposite of real love. So take a look again at verse 3. Okay, this is a but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I'm reading the Bible, maybe even in particular the Apostle Paul, and I think, Paul, can we just calm down? Like, man, that's intense. But it probably says more about me than it does about him. Because Paul knows that God really cares about this. This really matters. That we do not confuse our desires for love. And if we take a moment and actually think about it that way, it makes a lot of sense. We've probably all felt at one time or another, a strong desire for something. It may have been, in fact, the most powerful feeling we had in the moment, maybe even almost overwhelming. 
but it directly contradicted what we might call our deepest desire or our deepest love in the same moment. This, this dynamic is probably the most apparent uh, for those who struggle with addiction. So, you know, ask anyone in recovery and they'll tell you that at any given moment, their strongest desire might be to indulge in their addiction, whether that's sexual or chemical or whatever. But their deepest, their deepest love, their strongest desire may be to indulge, but their deepest desire, their deepest love is to be free of that. It's to stop hurting their family and their loved ones and their friends through their behavior. To have a normal life and to, to regain a sense of self-control. To actually love themselves and those around them well. And, and so you, you see immediately that their desires are in direct conflict with their love. See that? They are not the same thing. Now we do this too. This is Paul's point. Loved people love people more than their desire at any given moment. And Paul's focus here, if you didn't notice, it's, it, it really is focused on sexual desire. This, this word sexual morality this is translating a Greek, the Greek word porneia, which is a broad term. It covers a lot of ground. And I'm warning you now that depending on, again, on your background, this list may shock and offend, but it's important that we name what, what the scriptures are telling us. So porneia would include things like pornography use, lust, casual sex, hooking up, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your fiance, any sexual behavior outside of marriage, living together unmarried, outright adultery. This word would also include uh, same-sex sexual behavior, all of that. Now, if you're listening to me now, I imagine you may be having one of two responses as you listen. The first is, you may be listening to this and feeling, Andrew, I struggle with something really difficult here and I feel alone in this. I feel shame with you even just bringing this up or talking about it. Maybe you experience same-sex attraction. Maybe you struggle with compulsive behavior around pornography. Maybe something else. And depending on your experience with the church, you may feel hurt or let down by leadership or by other Christians or in the struggle that you have. And I want you to hear me say, God is with us. God is with us. We all have broken sexuality. Every single one of us does. And God is with us as we strive to walk in love by his power. We are not alone. We are a community empowered by love and by grace. So please know you do not walk alone in those struggles. And we'll say more about that later in our message. The other response you may be having is a little different than that. You may be thinking, Andrew, why, are, why is this such a big deal? Why are we talking about this? Why is the church so enamored with this old-fashioned, traditional view of sex and sexuality? As long as everyone consents, that's good enough, right? There's no harm done. Why are we talking about this? It's a fair question. It's a fair question. I will point out to you, back in this text, Paul's emphasis here, which is that our sexuality must align with God's design not for arbitrary reasons, not as punishment, but it's actually for our good and the good of our neighbor, both. We cannot, in this spiritual family, look at one another with lustful intent. 
right? Remember, that's who Paul's writing. He's writing to help the church about how the church relates to the church. That's what Paul's doing. If this community, I mean, really think about this. If this community became a place of casual lust or commitmentless living together, right? What effect would that have on us? What would that do? I mean, does anyone truly in this room think that that would be the loving thing to do? That that would look like a community of committed love? Would this be a safe place for anybody? Of course not. No. Because love must be stronger than desire. If it isn't, desire will exploit other people. It always will. There is never a harmless way to use other people to fulfill your desires. There just isn't. It's always harmful. This is more than just an old-fashioned view of human sexuality that, that Paul and the Bible and the church is trying to force on modern people. I know we tend to think that the sexual revolution and, and our, our moment here in the 2020s is some grand new idea, but it is not. The Roman world into which Paul wrote this letter was incredibly promiscuous. All manner of behavior was acceptable, whether that was pedophilia in certain circumstances, prostitution, same-sex sexual relationships were acceptable, and many, many other things. And of course, those practices were inherently damaging mostly to women and to children. And remember, sexual freedom in the Roman Empire was basically just for men. Women couldn't sleep around without serious social consequence. So remember with me, as we read Paul here, Paul is simply telling us that men must be held to the same standard as women when it comes to their desires. That's part of God's concern here, actually, is that when our desire runs wild, it has a direct effect on the most vulnerable. It always does. If you peel back, in fact, the curtain on our libertine modern view of sexuality, you will find the same kind of exploitation happening. Think with me, the pornography industry, the modern slave industry are propped up by an insatiable desire that takes advantage of the most vulnerable. It's what, it's what it does. This free sex has oversold and under-delivered, and it's been doing it since the first century. And family, if we feel sometimes that, that the biblical sexual ethic is weird and crazy in our current climate, you, depending on where you work or where you go to school, or, right, you're going to encounter a very different view on all of this, and it may stand out as strange. There's nothing new about that either. Larry Hurtado is a brilliant Christian historian, and he writes specifically about the history of the early Christian movement in the context of the Roman Empire. His book is called Destroyer of the Gods. He wrote this. He says, Paul labels these behaviors, some of which we've just read, as sinful and completely off-limits for believers. In doing so, I repeat, he asserted and reflected a stance diametrically opposed to the prevailing attitudes of the time. And he intended to distinguish sharply what should be the sexual behavior of believers, particularly males. Loved people love people, even when it looks weird. Even when it looks strange. I know I'm biased. 
I'm a Christian minister. I've completely bought in to Jesus and the New Testament and its teachings about desire, and in particular now around sexual desire and its proper place in a committed marriage between a man and a woman. And I know, depending on, again, depending on your background or what, what brought you here today, that may sound crazy to you, and that's okay. But can we at least admit together that as strict as Paul's command here is for God's people, and it is, that our obsession culturally with a liberated sexuality has not had the desired effect. It has not done what it promised to do. And I kid you not, I I was reading an article a few months ago by a woman named Louise Perry. She's not religious, she's not traditional in any sense of of those words. She's a strong feminist thinker and writer. The article, get this, is called, I'm 30, The Sexual Revolution Shackled My Generation. This is a direct quote. The new sexual culture isn't so much about the liberation of women, as so many feminists would have us believe, but the adaptation of women to the expectations of a familiar character. Don Juan, Casanova, or more recently, Hugh Hefner. Okay, one more. This one broke my heart. She says, particularly Gen Z women have experienced the worst of it. On TikTok, teenage girls were swapping their war stories and decrying a sex-positive culture that sets them up to fail. On Reddit, a group called Female Dating Strategy is offering tips on how to survive in a dating culture that is fundamentally hostile toward women. If you don't listen to Paul, listen to Louise Perry. We are not progressing by moving away from Ephesians 5. We are regressing in the name of freedom into an oppressive and exploitative place that preys on the most vulnerable among us. And listen, for those nodding along, which I'm grateful for, I point this out not to say, look at all those bad people out there. Aren't we glad we're so much better than them? That's not my posture right now. The point is, as is Paul's point, that we cannot participate in that. That is the focus. We cannot do that. We are loved people who love people more than our desires. These things are community killers, as well as affronts to the God who loves us. And we must look different in our walk in love. Sex is meant to be a wonderful gift. It is a stewardship, not simply of desire, but of deep, committed love. The Christian story around sex is that sex is not the, it it is, that sex is the end result, not the first step, but the end result of a commitment to another person and their good in every conceivable way. Financially, emotionally, psychologically, legally, spiritually, as a reflection of God's commitment to us. Okay, enough of the S word. I know, I've said enough about that. We must be known more for our love than our desire. And part of the way we fight our selfish desires is through a desire for light in the darkness, both without and within, because loved people love people more than privacy. This is another desire that can, be, that can run amok. We all desire privacy, and by that I mean we work really, really hard to present ourselves to the world in such a way that communicates, I'm okay, I'm fine, 
got this, no help needed here. But that is not how we walk in light. Loved people love the light because they have nothing to hide. Listen to Paul here again, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay, this is our, our call. And first, I think this means that we can shine light on others who are living in darkness. Of course, we, we do this with love and respect, but when we see people we care about walking in darkness, especially people in our church family, and our spiritual family, we must help them see the light. It's what love people do. And second... This also means we must allow the light to shine on our own darkness. We don't have to be afraid. You're God's beloved. God God already knows how dark we can be. He knows. He knows how tempting it is for us to succumb to our strongest desires instead of our deepest loves. He knows that. But we must accept his gift of light in dark places. And that may look like confession to a trusted friend or spouse. It may look like a simple apology to someone you know that you hurt. Someone here at church, someone at home, someone at work, someone at school. It may be as simple as asking a friend out for coffee where you know there's a conflict and and committing to work work it out. Or it may be as drastic as calling a pastor or a counselor and asking for help. And I get it. There's deep shame for everyone around the things we work really, really hard to hide. There's a reason this desire for darkness is so strong. Yet because of Jesus, you're his beloved. Because of Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter what regrets you may have, you can be forgiven. You're loved and accepted in him. And when we allow others to see us, and it it will feel vulnerable, to be sure, but we are already safe in God's love. And this can begin to free us from the shame that keeps us running to those dark things in the first place. So who this week will you trust enough to let a little light shine in? Because loved people love people more than their privacy. And they build the kind of community where that kind of honesty is okay. This is where Paul finishes here. Love people. Love people enough to build a better community. Look at verse 15. Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a lot there, and it may have been a little confusing to you, like what is Paul talking about? 
Remember with me, Paul here is writing to a very specific time and culture, and here he's contrasting two very different worshiping communities. On the one hand, there's the pagan gathering, the pagan worshiping community. This, this worship might happen in a temple or a religious festival, a business meeting, seriously. But it was characterized often by drunkenness and then all kinds of foolish behavior. In contrast, Paul describes the Christian worshiping community. And it's characterized by being filled with the Spirit, by singing together and over one another, by worshiping Jesus, being thankful to God in Jesus' name, as well as submitting to one another, that is, deferring to the needs of one another as a habit of worship to Jesus. In in other words, this passage is about the kind of community we are to have when we gather together. Yes, of course, on Sunday morning, but also in our classes where we're learning, in our student ministry small groups when we're talking, in our community groups when we're meeting, in our Bible studies, all of it. Instead of being controlled with wine, we should be controlled by the presence of God. Instead of filthy talk, we should encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Instead of lust and covetousness, we should practice gratitude to God who's given us every good thing. And instead of taking advantage of one another, we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if our goal is to build a better community, it also means that our our Sunday gatherings are not about our own comfort or singing only songs that we like or listening to sermons that we, actually, that we feel we connect with, because they're about building something together as a committed family that looks wildly different and attractive to a watching world, a world that may indulge in every desire, but has no idea what it means to be a beloved child of God. That is part of why we gather, why our presence here matters so much, why our participation and our intentionality in learning names and getting to know one another and joining together in classes and grief share and community groups and, and everything in between, why they matter so deeply to God. Because in the Spirit, He is building a community of loved people who can model and share that love with one another And then share it with anyone who darkens our church doors, our school classroom doors, our front doors. And perhaps most importantly, we need one another because it is so easy to forget how loved we actually are. We need intentionally every week together to remember that we are beloved children of God. And that whatever God instructs us in his word, as difficult as it may be for us to hear, it is actually for our good. That we are, in this community, messy as it is, called to serve and defer to one another in tangible, even if needed, uncomfortable, but real ways. That when we sing, we don't do it because we sound good or because the people around us sound good, but to worship Jesus and to respond to his love for us, to remember who we are and whose we are, that we do not need the darkness anymore. We don't need it. We don't need indulgence. Love people, love people, because Jesus reigns here and he is all we need. Together. Let's pray to him now.
Father, fill this place, fill your people with your spirit. Make us the kind of people, the kind of community that loves the light, that shines bright in a dark and lonely world, that sees every moment and every opportunity for what it is, an opportunity to love our neighbor, to worship you, and to witness to the love of God in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.